coming to the end of this series. It's been a little bit of a shorter series than I usually do. It's only a three-week series. I've been talking about this concept and this idea of Neighborhood Watch, but I'm really excited uh, to start next week. We had to kind of reshuffle our calendar a little bit. We were expecting our missionary speaker to come in next week, and it was going to work really well on the back end of this series. Uh, but then they had a big, like, major gathering over in Austria. I mean, <clears throat> something like that, whatever. Um, so they couldn't come in next week, and we had to put them off till March. So I'm going to dive in next week and begin talking through the book of Hebrews, uh, which I'm really excited about. I always kind of get bummed, though, when I do a book study because we don't ever really get to go through every part of the book. We only have to capture, like, major portions of the book. But use this as a promo for, I'm already thinking about 2021. Uh, 2021, by the way, it looks really awesome over here when I look and I see those hoodies. Um, 2021, we have a, an ambitious plan that we are looking to go through the whole Bible uh, next year uh, and preach through the entire Bible next year. And I'm not really sure, every time I think about it, I also start thinking, I'm like, it's going to be really hard just to try to get through the Bible in a year. So I, I, it might actually take like a year and a half. It may like take two years, but I really want us to take some time to walk through and walk through the entire story and the whole narrative uh, of the Bible. So if you are a person who's like, why doesn't he ever finish a book? Well, I kind of do that in real life. I don't ever really finish any book that I start and read, but um, it's because we kind of just got to keep motoring on. So I just hit the highlights, but next year is your year if you really want to dig deep on some of these books of the Bible. But back to neighborhood watch for the time being. Have you ever found yourself asking uh, this question, what, what is it all about? I mean, it's often a question that we ask whether we're watching a movie or we're reading a book or we're preparing to watch a TV show. In that question, what are we really asking when we ask what is it all about? We're asking, what, what is a story? I mean, what is a central theme? What is the idea, what is the overarching message in, in whatever you're doing? Reading a book, watching a movie, watching a TV show. We know there's not much point in watching a show, there's not much point in reading a book if there is not some coherent thought or there is not some coherent thread that weaves together the story the author or the director is trying to tell us. Sometimes you might walk here on a Sunday morning and you might listen to a sermon and you're like, what in the world is he trying to say again? Yes, it's, it's that very feeling that you have when you go, huh? What was that all about? We've all read stories. We've watched one too many movies when we get to the end of it. And we do that. We say, what was that all about? What did I just give my last hour and a half or two hours to doing? We feel like we've missed something in the mix, and we can't logically determine what was so important that we just read or we just heard. As one website puts it, they say it this way, a common criticism that moviegoers tend to levy against motion pictures of all kinds is nothing happens. This, of course, is a phrase usually employed to denote the movie was either boring or that there was little action or that there was little dialogue to speak of or that the narrative didn't go in the direction that they expected. And it was that last line that really kind of caught me for where we're going this morning, what we're talking about. That, that's oftentimes how we live life, don't we? That like, ho-hum, nothing's going on, nothing's happening, my life's just boring, I'm just standing here doing nothing. But oftentimes, I think it's what that last line says, that the story doesn't go in the direction that you expect it to go. And so oftentimes, because a story doesn't go in the direction that you expect it to go, that's why you sit there and think, what, what, am, what am I doing? What's going on in my life? Where am I going in my life? 
Now, this is one thing when it deals with books or it deals with movies or it deals with any other media, but it is a big-time problem, guys, when it deals with God's Word. And the truth is, and I can't tell you how many people I've heard say this, a wide number of people. And if you're here this morning and this is true of you, don't be like, ooh, shame. No, it's, I'm not shaming anybody. But more than likely, probably some of you feel this way, that when you read Scripture, it feels like an exercise in futility because as you're reading through Scripture, you often say the same thing that we would when we read a book or we watch a movie. What's the point? I mean, like, what's the big story here? What's the story that's going on? I mean, like, like did I, can I at least get some head nods on that one? That there are sometimes you read the Bible and you're like, I, I, I got nothing. Like, what is going on here? And sometimes you, like, get really dedicated and you'll read, a book, you'll read the Bible for, like, months and you're like, I'm so confused. Like, what's the story that's happening here? There's, like, all kinds of stuff going on and I can't get through to see the really big story in all of it. And admittedly, there is a sense as we are reading scripture that it becomes difficult to see the forest for the trees, to use the proverbial saying. But what if I were to tell you that in reading God's word, there is one clear and there is one consistent message, one theme that rings from the opening pages of scripture to the glorious vision of the future in Revelation in the closing pages. The truth is, guys, God's word to us has one single thread that runs through it. Which, when we grasp a hold of that message, is the key to understanding every single piece of Scripture. I mean, think, think of it this way. If I were to ask you, and I, I'd, I'd be interested, I want to hear some thoughts on this. What the central theme or message of the Bible is, what would you say? What is a central theme of the Bible? A central message? Somebody just... Hey, you know what, buddy? You picked a good one to go with. You just can't go wrong when you say Jesus, right? Jesus is a central theme, a central message of the Bible. Anybody else have anything they'd like to throw out? I, I, there probably aren't any wrong answers, by the way, so just go for it. What? Love. Love is a good one, right? It's a good theme that is captured all throughout the Bible. Anybody else? Like this side want to play in the game? Do what? Okay, redemption. I honestly thought she said, we're dummies. I was like... <laughs> Well, I mean, that one is there, right? We kind of are dummies. Redemption, though, is a much better word. I like that one. Any other? A couple more. What is a big theme or a message of the Bible? Repentance, absolutely. Salvation. All right, so, I mean, so we're already kind of making our case, aren't we, right? Probably if I were to go around and ask every single one of you, I would get a lot of those same answers, and I would get a lot more thrown into that. And you understand, don't you, that when you get that amount of answers, it gets really confusing, doesn't it? Like, those are all true, that those things are found in the Bible, but the question really was, what is the central theme, or what is the central message of the Bible? And we have to understand this, don't we? There can't be many and mixed messages, can there? There has to be one message. One single message in all of the Bible. Certainly, like I said, those are all large themes in the Bible, what we just mentioned. How could we deny that every person, moment, symbol, sign, and story ultimately point to the revealing of Jesus to a watching and waiting world? Good job, Luke. Way to go on that one, by the way. All right. How could we misread that God's pursuing us and all of his creation is to lavish his incomprehensible love and grace upon us? That message is in there as well. 
Has this not been the theme that we've been talking about for the last two weeks and now this week in our Neighborhood Watch series? The Good Samaritan was our foundation for week one. Last week we talked about the gospel's ability to supersede culture and our biases and our prejudices and our preferences. In each sermon, what really stood at the center was, was grace. We've talked about grace so much. Every one of our songs that have been picked over the last three weeks now have had that tinge to it. Grace. Grace poured out on us to be extended and to be enacted in the lives of those around us. What if I told you that all of our attempts to explain the major theme or the major themes of Scripture could be wrapped up in M&M? No, not, not that M&M, not the chocolate-covered candy M&M. I'm talking about two M's that stand at the center of God's message that he is constantly trying to transmit to this world. And you know, the more I got to think about it, though, really, the M&M is a great metaphor for what God is trying to do in this world. It serves as a great picture of the relationship between these dual themes, the, these M&Ms. Think about it. What, what is an M&M, really? It's just chocolate wrapped in a candy shell, isn't it? But it's so darn good, right? It's just simple. It's a simple little candy. And herein lies my proposal for this morning and where I'm going. The Bible, guys, I'm just going to show it to you right now. I'm going to play the cards right now. And we're going to work through this. The Bible really rests on two things. Two things alone. Messiah and mission. Jesus and God's mission for this world. Every single thing, love, grace, redemption, salvation, repentance, name every single thing that you could think of, every one of those flow from Jesus and God's mission for this world. That's it. Simple as could be, all right? So maybe that helps you a little bit from now on if you go and you start reading scripture and you're like, where am I at again? How do I get my bearings? What in the world could that story be saying about either A, Jesus, or God's mission for this world? That kind of helps you to get back on the track a little bit. In a crude way, it's really the concept of an M&M, the wonderful news of the gospel that God is on mission and we are sent on mission, wrapped up in the in living embodiment of the gospel, Jesus Christ himself. Now, the illustration and the metaphor of the M&M breaks down, obviously, at some point, but my theory and my discovery is that the key which unlocks so much of what confuses us about God is this word, or the words that we're talking about this morning. And it really boils down to Christ, and again, God's mission in this world. Or to put it another way, if you will, the point of the story of the Bible and all of Scripture is the message that Christ has come to start, to send, and to sustain the message that God is a God of mission. Like, we're often tempted, guys, sometimes, and, and again, I... I wish I had time to really unpack this word mission, because often when we think about mission, what do we think of? We really often think about missions. And when we think about missions, what we really think about is people who go from, like, usually America to some other part of the world to spread the gospel. That's a fraction of what mission is all about. It's the tiniest speck of what missions is all about. It is an important part of what mission is all about but it's not really the word that I'm using this morning. What I'm talking about when I talk about mission is I'm talking about 
God's mission. And that's very important. Because if we ever have anything in our mind that we have some sort of a mission or that we're inventing some kind of a mission, we're off base already. It is only and it is ever God's mission. God is a God of mission. And again, we're tempted to read scripture from the standpoint of trying to to read mission or better yet missions into God's word. We're trying to find some biblical precedent for mission when what we should really be discovering as we read scripture is that scripture is grounded in mission. A very specific mission. Again, I already said it, God's mission. As author Christopher Wright says in his book, The Mission of God, Unlocking the Bible's Grand Narrative, he says this, Mission is a major key that unlocks the whole grand story of Scripture. The Bible doesn't just contain a number of texts or stories or characters that happen to provide the basis for mission, but the whole Bible, and this is a big phrase here, guys, this is a big idea. The whole Bible itself is a missional phenomenon. The writings that comprise our Bible are themselves the product of and the witness to the ultimate mission of God. Exhibit A was Jesus himself, was it not? Jesus didn't come to this earth to get glory. Jesus did not come to this earth to get and to bring attention to himself. But as he says in his own words, John chapter 14, he's talking to the disciples. And he says this in verses 6 through 9. Jesus told them, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. If you had really known me, now listen to this, guys. He's revealing a big thing here. If you had really known me, you would know who my Father is. And from now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. And in a typical disciple way, one of them pipes up, and they say something really stupid. But we probably would have said the same thing. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. Jesus replied, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. That was Jesus' point and his purpose on this earth. It wasn't to be like, hey, here I am. I'm Jesus. I can do all kinds of great and wonderful and cool things, miracles, signs, wonders. Everything that Jesus did, and if you really look at everything he did, all of it was meant to do what? Point straight back to God. Point straight back to the Father. This is who he is. This is who I'm trying to reveal God the Father to be. God in his whole essence, in his whole nature, I'm trying to reveal who he is. In short form, Jesus made it abundantly clear that he came to reveal the Father and, by extension, the Father's heart. And as I've already begun making the case for it, God's heart is set ablaze by mission. Not not just any mission, but a mission with its end goal being people who would know him, turn to him, and be restored to him. A mission that involves his pursuing humanity at all costs. And surprisingly enough, guys, and here's really the thing that always trips me up and just wows me. It's a mission that he desires to include us in. You and me. Like me. He desires to include me in this massive mission. Is that not just mind-blowing to you? And here's the thing that we need to understand, something I try to get across clearly. 
all the time. We are not made to just come and to sit there Sunday after Sunday and be like, that was wonderful. Great job, God. And then go home and it doesn't affect our lives the other six days of the week. The point is that he has called us to a mission. He has included us in a mission and he has sent us on mission and we have to understand that. Not just on Sunday mornings, but every single day of our lives. Jesus starts the mission and he sets the mission in motion, but we need to understand and we need to embrace that he has entrusted this mission to us. By definition, guys, if we are going to call ourselves a disciple of Jesus, it involves being sent. That we are going into every part of the world to carry out the mission that is revealed to us in Scripture. I probably don't need to read this Scripture to you, but I feel like that I do because it is so incredibly important. Matthew chapter 28, what does he say? Starting in verse 16. Then the eleven disciples left for Galilee, going to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some of them doubted. And Jesus came and he told his disciples, I have been given all authority. Now there were points in scripture and in the gospels where Jesus clearly demonstrated that he had some level of authority over things. But here at the very end, before he ascends back into heaven, he tells the guys, I have authority over everything. Every molecule. Every Adam has to obey me. I've been given all of that authority, so therefore, you go make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach the new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you, and be sure of this. And this is very interesting, too, here at the end, because most of the time we would read this as not a command, but it actually is a command here at the end. It's the word, sometime in other translations, it would be low, or be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Isn't it very interesting that in just four short verses, there is a treasure trove of directives and truth that encompasses three S words that I just mentioned a little bit ago, and I really want you to kind of get these in your mind. Starts, sins, sustains. That's what Jesus does for us on our behalf. Verse 18, Jesus starts, and really the better word is what I would call is Jesus jump starts the mission of God, because please don't be fooled into thinking that Matthew 28, all of a sudden, oh, everything's revealed by God. God's been doing this all throughout history. He's been doing this all throughout scripture. Jesus just jump starts the mission here. I have been given all authority is what he says. It starts with me, he says. Everything rests on me, is what Jesus says. Verse 19, Jesus sins, therefore, based on the authority, go, or more truthfully, actually the translation is, as you are going. Verse 20, Jesus also sustains this mission. I am with you always. And again, that's not the only time that, that shows up in Scripture. That shows up all over Scripture where God says to his people, don't freak out, don't worry, just trust me, because guess what? I'll give you the best promise that I can give you. I am with you always. 
Just so we don't think this mission is isolated to one moment in time or to a, a group of people, a lot of people would say that, like, well, Ryan, like, here in Matthew 28, he's really just talking to, like, 11 guys, so is he really talking to us? False. He's actually talking to probably about 511 people here at this end thing. We, we think that there's just 11 guys there. But it says in Scripture that Jesus was at one point seen by over 500 people. Many scholars believe with credibility, with great ideas and great minds, that this is the moment right here that 500 people see Jesus when he's giving them this commission. Let me take you on a quick journey through Scripture to prove the point that God's mission has been active from the opening pages of Scripture all the way to the end. Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15 is known as the proto Evangelion. It just simply means this, the first gospel. Gospel doesn't show up in the book of Matthew. The gospel is there from the very beginning. You remember Adam and Eve have sinned, all right, and, and God comes and he says, this is what's going to happen to you, serpent. I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Continuing on. And he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Right there for, from, from point one, what is God telling Satan? You are toast. Now that would took thousands of years to work that right there out in the coming of Jesus Christ. But already there, God is saying, I'm on a mission to set things right, to restore the order of all things. Genesis 12, 3 is the story of Abraham and God coming to Abraham. And he says, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. Abraham is to be a blessing to all nations. Psalm 67, verses 2 and 3 says, May your ways, God, be known throughout the earth, your saving power among people everywhere. May the nations praise you, O God. Yes, may all the nations praise you. Then it says later on in, in Psalm 97, the Lord is king. Let the earth rejoice. Let the farthest coastlands be glad. The heavens proclaim his righteousness. Every nation sees his glory. For you, O Lord, are supreme over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. God, God desires that the farthest reaches of the earth know and glorify him. Isaiah 49, 6, he says, you will, you will do more than just restore the people of Israel to me. Listen to this, guys. I will make you a light to the Gentiles, and you will bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Does that sound a little familiar? Sounds a whole lot like Matthew 28, does it not? Matthew 28 is already there, even before Isaiah, but especially in Isaiah 49.6. Israel is not enough for God. The territory must expand to include Gentiles. That actually there in Isaiah 49.6 is what Simeon quotes in Luke chapter 2 when he's holding Jesus in his arms in the temple. He quotes Isaiah 49.6. What does Jesus say in John chapter 10, verse 16? I have other sheep too that are not in this sheepfold. Like that is a really, really relevant verse to us sitting here this morning. There are other people that are waiting to sit here in these pews. 
and to hear the word of God and to be transformed in the word of God. It's not just us. I have other sheep too, Jesus says, that are not in this sheepfold. I must bring them in. They will listen to my voice and there will be one flock and there will be one shepherd. This is fascinating to me. In John chapter 12, and this last one I'm going to read here of this kind of journey through scripture. Jesus, even in predicting his death and anticipating his death, had a mission spirit to him. Listen to what he says when he's talking to the guys. And when I am lifted up, and he's talking about the cross, obviously, here. When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw everyone to myself. Guys, there is, there is a, a mission thread that runs all throughout Scripture. Not only is there a biblical basis for missions, it's accurate to see a missionary purpose for the entire Bible. Scholar Ed Stetzer would say it this way, to understand the depth of our sentness, consider that the source of our identity is located in the sending nature of God. This sending is as central to God's nature as his love and his forgiveness and his righteousness and his holiness. And then I love this last line. Without God's sending nature, we would know little else of his other attributes. Everything rests on God's spirit of mission. The mission of God. So much so that he would say that we would know little else. We would almost know nothing of God's other qualities and his nature if we didn't know about his sending nature. And this sentence is not just locked into one scripture in Matthew 28. It's caught in the mission of God all throughout scripture. But to narrow our focus just a little bit, I'm going to zero in on the Gospels. Christ's commission is found in each one of the Gospels in varying forms. And I know that shouldn't come as a shock, but it, it shocks some people. They're like, what? I only know of Matthew 28. It's there in every single gospel that Jesus is saying to his people, go, I'm sending you. Mark 16, 15 says this very simply in one line that's captured there. And he told them, go into all the world and preach the good news to everyone. Anyone who refuses in his... Uh, believes and is baptized will be saved, but anyone who refuses to believe will be condemned. The book of Luke, and this is really kind of a strange one. We don't often think of this as, as kind of a commission, but you remember that Jesus is raised back to life, and then he walks to Emmaus on the road with two disciples, and he reveals himself to them, and he says he opens the scriptures, and he shows in the scriptures who he is, and lays that out to them. And then in verses 44 through 49, it says, he said, when I was with you before, guys, I told you everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. I believe what he is really doing is he's kind of showing God's mission heart. And he said, yes, it was written long ago that the Messiah would suffer and die and rise from the dead on the third day. It was also written this message will be proclaimed in authority of his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. There is forgiveness of sins for all who repent. You are witnesses of all these things. And now I will send the Holy Spirit just as my father promised, but stay here in the city until the Holy Spirit comes and fills you with power from heaven. That's a commissioning moment that Jesus is giving to his disciples in Luke 24. Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. We just read this actually last week. 
Very familiar uh, section of scripture. It says this. When the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? And he replied, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they're not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Sounds very familiar to Luke, right? Because guess what? I would just call Acts actually a continuation of the book of Luke. Same people write, same guy writing it. Says, all this power will come on you. You by my witness telling people about me everywhere. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Then lastly, flipping back just one page here in my Bible. John chapter 20, verses 19 through 22. It says that Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. And suddenly Jesus was standing there among them and he said, peace be with you. As he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and in his side, and they were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. Again, he said, peace be with you, as the Father has sent me. There it is again. So I am sending you. And then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, two things are really striking to me as I read through those collections of scriptures. As you sat there and listened to them this morning and read them with me, in two places, very prominently, what does Jesus tell the disciples to do in fulfilling the commission he is entrusting with them? Specifically in Luke and in the book of Acts. Do you know what he tells them? This is the craziest thing. This is what you guys need to do to fulfill the Great Commission. Nothing. Jesus tells these guys that he is about to set loose into the world. The first thing that you need to do, and this is really, really important, do nothing. Wait. I mean, like, how humbling is that? How humbling, and this, this really will humble every one of us. As someone has keenly observed, our only real contribution to the Great Commission is obedience. That's it. Again, nothing that we conjure up, not that we are so great and wonderful, not that it was our idea. Obedience. That's all you really contribute to going out and taking the gospel into the world. There is nothing in us, there is nothing about us that, that sustains this mission. We are simply servants in the hands of the master missionary. Fundamentally, our mission means our committed participation as God's people, at God's invitation and command, in God's own mission, within the history of God's world for the redemption of God's creation. Do you notice a big theme there? It's all God's. And he is just, by his grace, handed it over to us. There is nothing within us that would compel us to take up or sustain that mission, but our mission and our call flows from and participates in the mission of God. J.D. Greer says it this way, and I want you to hear this really, really clearly this morning. When it comes to the idea of, of sentness being a major part of the mission, sending capacity, not seeding capacity, should divine, define a church's success. I would call it faithfulness in the mission of God. It doesn't matter about butts and seats. It matters about butts being sent out there into the world and doing something for God. That's how a church can stand there and say, with all faithfulness, we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. 
Jesus' vision of the church was not a group of people who were just gathered around one leader. Like again, this is the smallest fraction of what your spiritual life should be about. Not to come in here and listen to this talking head week after week. Jesus' vision of the church was multiple leaders, multiple ministers sent out in the power of the Spirit. Which leads me to a very second important observation when I read Christ's commission to his followers. Everything has to do with the Holy Spirit. The importance of the Holy Spirit, guys, cannot be understated. It cannot be omitted. And I know when we start talking about Holy Spirit stuff, some people be like, mm, don't talk about that. Oh, don't do that. That freaks me out. I don't know what that Spirit's going to do. That's right, you don't. That's the beauty of it. It's no mistake that Christ's first step in commanding his disciples to fill the commission is already what I've said. Don't leave. Stay put. Just wait for the Father's promise. And then he says this, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. What is Jesus essentially saying as the fate and eternity of millions is on the brink? Hold, hold up, boys. Just wait. Like, Jesus, that's not really a great command. Like, we're doing nothing. If that seems odd and it seems contradictory, look at it from another perspective. Why would Jesus tell the boys to hold off on doing what they were called to do? Because I think Jesus understood that there is a primary need that is often overlooked in taking the gospel and making disciples. It doesn't mean a shred if the Holy Spirit isn't at the center of our mission and our motives in that mission. These first disciples, and, and, and we guys are the same way. We can do nothing effectively. We can do nothing that has any lasting fruit unless we do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. And perhaps I think that's why we get so frustrated and we get so confused and we get so twisted inside out when it comes to our growth and expansion strategy that we have today. Because by and large, in most of our lives and in most of our ideas and our thoughts and our techniques that we have, we have completely nixed the spirit from any and every part of the mission. Acts especially reveals that the Holy Spirit is in the starring role. He guides. He speaks. He moves. The disciples are simply just trying to keep up in all this. At their best and at our best, guys, we're just simply conduits of the Spirit's power. At worst, guys, we're just obstructions. We're just obstacles. J.D. Greer has this really famous line that I always seem to come across, and it really strikes me at first, but then it makes sense if you really understand Scripture. Scripture makes it abundantly clear that the Spirit inside of us and empowering us is better than Jesus beside us. I know you hear that and you think, well, wait a minute, what? Look it up. Read Scripture. Every time, what does Jesus say to his disciples? It is better for you that I leave this earth, and what I will send in my place is going to be so much better. It is going to be the Holy Spirit. It's no question. Read the book of Acts. The effectiveness of Jesus' disciples was dramatically increased after Jesus left this earth. 
The same thing holds true in our own day, in our own lives, guys. We are made more effective when we stop relying on other people and we start relying on the Spirit to powerfully use and move us. I love the way that Martin Lloyd-Jones, old English preacher, put it about the Holy Spirit. He goes, those who have received the Holy Spirit are aware of a power dealing with them and working in them. A disturbance, something, someone interfering in their lives. You ever have that feeling before? When the Holy Spirit moment, you're like, just get out of here. <laughs> like You're really messing up my life right now. We, we are going along and suddenly we are arrested and we're pulled up and we find ourselves different. That is the beginning. That is what always happens when the Holy Ghost begins to work in a human being. There is a disturbance, an interruption to the normal, ordinary tenor of life. There is something different, an awareness of being dealt with. And he says, I cannot put it better. That is the essence of the Holy Spirit dealing with us. God's plan to glorify himself in the church never consisted of platforms. It never consisted of cutting-edge techniques or impressive buildings or technology. The gospel and the call to spread the gospel has always been couched in the need for our lives to be spirit-filled and to pour it out for the sake of other people. And for them to be known by and to know Christ. Because there's nothing wrong with gifted speakers and buildings and technologies as tools, but they're just that. Nothing will replace the real power of the Holy Spirit in the church. Empowering and enlivening us and enlivening people to carry Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection to the innumerable lives that you'll touch on the time that we are given on this earth. As we are going, that's what Matthew 28 says, as we are going about our daily lives outside the bounds and the blessings of the church. And that is key. It's no coincidence that as Luke writes the book of Acts, he takes extra, extra care to highlight that the advance of the gospel happens by ordinary people in ordinary circumstances. Of all the miraculous moments of the book of Acts, there's approximately about 40 miraculous moments that we could chalk up to that. 39 of those 40 are experienced outside of the church gathering or outside of the official meeting. Do you know what that that speaks to me and says to me? It speaks to the cultural reality that we're in today. That people, by and large, are not just wandering into the church today. People don't wake up on a Sunday morning and think to themselves, you know what? Nothing better to do with two hours of my life but to go to church and to listen to a guy on a stage talk. Which is to say, guys, that people are not being engaged by the gospel, and increasingly so in our post-Christian culture, they're going to have fewer and fewer opportunities to hear the gospel preached and spoken. I hear people all the time that say, now come on, Ryan, you're telling me like, even in Connersville, Indiana, that there are people who haven't heard the gospel, I firmly believe yes. It, it's mind-blowing to me that in 2020, we have people right here in our own backyard who still have not heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what in the world is the solution in this dire problem that we have today? Guys, people in our day will have to be reached outside the walls of the church. And and that means individual believers, you, me, living, filled with the Spirit, 
more than ever. Like, like do, do you know how the gospel spreads by and large? Gospel doesn't spread by one guy standing up here. It, it spreads person to person. Life to life. It's always been that way. It's been that way from the very beginning. Robert Coleman, who was a guy who read, he wrote a book called The Master Plan of Evangelism, he said this. He says, whether Jesus was addressing the multitudes that pressed upon him, whether he was arguing with the Pharisees who sought to trap him, or he was speaking to some lonely beggar along the road, the disciples were close at hand to observe him and to listen to him. And through this manner of personal demonstration, every aspect of Jesus' personal discipline of life was given to his disciples. And listen to this. This is what Jesus was always trying to get across to the disciples. I believe he's trying to also still get it to us today. One living sermon is worth a hundred explanations. Now that's not to demean that teaching and preaching is not important. It is incredibly important. But I can't tell you the number of people who come up to me and they say, you know what? I can't remember a single sermon that I've ever heard in my life. But do you know what I do remember? I do remember that one person who loved me enough to come into my life and to introduce Jesus to me in just the smallest and the simplest ways. That's what it means to be a, a living sermon. I, I had an opportunity this past week, and some of you know this, but um, Crystal's grandma, Nellie, passed away um, last week. And this past week we had the visitation and the funeral, and they asked me to, to come up and to give an opening prayer which I was a blubbering mess at, and I was just like, this is so awkward. I'm sitting here crying in front of all these people. I'm causing people to cry, and this is not fun at all. Um, but there was a point at the end of the, the, the funeral, and the guy who was leading the service said this. He said, if you have ever been taught by Nellie Hardy, could you please stand? And like, you just, I mean, you have to understand her. I have to understand Nellie. She was not flashy. She was not glitzy. She didn't want any ounce of attention on her at all. And sometimes we think that's what it's about. You've got to be the loudest person. You've got to have the greatest show in town. You've got to be the smartest person. How many people have been taught by and impacted by the life of Nellie Hardy, directly or indirectly? And you know what happened in that moment? An entire church full of people stood up. And I thought to myself, that's it. That, that's, that's a sermon. All you have to do in your life is be seeking to make an impact in somebody else's life. I mean, like, what better legacy could you ever have at the end of your life? Not that you would ever see it, but at your funeral, people would say, how many of you have ever been taught by, discipled, impacted by this person? And an entire group of people would stand up and say, yep, that's me. That's powerful, guys. That's the gospel. That's the great commission. One life that impacts countless others. And all of it was, and the word that kept coming up over and over in that funeral service was love. She loved her family. She, she loved the gospel. She loved the church. She loved people. Most importantly, she loved 
Jesus. D.L. Moody once said it this way. If you can really show a person that you love them, you've won them. I'm not talking about fake love, just so you can like, you know, oh, cool, I want them to Jesus. No, like love people genuinely. The way that you've been loved by Jesus, that wins every single time. It conquers everything, every single time. I have a video that I want you to watch, and this really struck me. It's a story of a a girl named uh, Sarah Coiner. I believe it's Sarah Coiner. I think that's her name. But she has cerebral palsy. And you would think of her as the last candidate on earth that would ever be great at being a great commissioned disciple of Jesus. But I want you to watch this video. Sarah was born in April of 1976. Um, at first, it wasn't obvious that she had any disabilities, but we found out when she was about a year old that she had cerebral palsy. As a disabled person, I don't get out of the house much, so my opportunities to share my faith are very limited. When I heard about Global Media Outreach at my church, I wanted to be a part of it. I knew that this would be a good opportunity for me. I've wanted to go on mission trips and things, but I feel like that's pretty impossible. And thus, I felt unable to do part of what the Lord told us to do. For me, it's a quiet marvel. When we hear the Lord say, go into the world, and we want with all of our hearts to do that, and that we, but, but we realize that I can't do that, that He says, oh, <laughs> I have a way. I make way. Working with Global Media Outreach allows me to share the knowledge and experience I have as a Christian. It also allows me to pray for different people all over the world. I hear from someone who has either just gotten saved or has rededicated his life to the Lord most every day. I've started writing someone lately who seems very interested in knowing more. By that, I think he's pretty hungry for the Lord. Getting a chance to see Sarah work as an online missionary was probably one of the most exciting and humbling experiences I've ever had. The things that she has to go through just to answer one email, it's amazing to me. But to see that she does it with such a, such a willing spirit and a desire to reach the lost, she's doing what every Christian on the face of the earth should be doing, and that's sharing the good news of the gospel. She's being a witness for Jesus. She's taken what God's given her and said, let me use that to glorify Him. And so here she is, someone who can't even feed herself, giving out the bread of life to so many thousands of people. Through my work with GMO, I have seen that God can use me and anyone else He wants to further His kingdom. And I like being useful. As disabled as I am, sometimes it feels like all I do is have others do for me. I don't feel like I give much back. GMO is definitely a place I can give back to the Lord. It's awesome to me that, that He has called her and with the calling provided her the, the, the work 
using a computer is something most people can do. Email is kind of an equalizer for me. Working with GMO allows me to be in touch with new believers from every part of the world. My life may be very limited because of my disability, but through global media outreach I can touch the world. Can't do it? Won't do it. That's, that's phenomenal. I would actually say that's supernatural. That's, that's, that was amazing to me when I saw that video. Girl, he was so dedicated. Like, can you imagine that? Like, you, you just see that and watching that little video, how much insane work it takes for her just to type a little bit. She's dedicated her life to that because she believes so strongly in the gospel. There's a moment in Matthew chapter 13 where it says that Jesus goes into his own hometown and it says that he, wasn't, he, he couldn't do any miracles and he couldn't do anything there in that town because the people didn't believe. They didn't have faith. And I often believe in our day, is that the problem that we have with the Great Commission? With taking the gospel and spreading the gospel to other people is not because we can't, it's because that we, we lack faith. We lack faith in a God who is all-powerful. We lack faith in a spirit who is more than able to empower us and enliven us to do what he's called us to do. Guys, God has a kingdom mission, and he entrusts that mission to the church. Or better yet, really, the church doesn't have a mission, but the mission has a church. It has a people, you and me, who are sent on mission with the sender. It's always interesting to me that we talk about the Great Commission, and we really forget to kind of break that word down and what it means. It's not a mission, it is a co-mission. God, again, has taken it and has entrusted to us and says, I'm looking for you to partner with me. So as the band comes up here this morning, we wrap up this series of talking about what it means to be a good neighbor. We started with that in week number one, because I think the greatest neighbor that we could be is one who would not walk across the world necessarily, not even walk across a state. If that's what God calls you to, that's wonderful. Do that. But just a good neighbor would be someone who's willing to walk across the street and to be engaged in someone else's life, to love someone enough that they would take Jesus to them. Would you stand with me this morning as we close in prayer and we sing this final song. Lord, I pray that that would be at the center of all of our hearts. That we are made for way, way more than to just be here and to just exist. And to just pop into church on a Sunday morning for a little bit and then go about the rest of our lives. Oh, now I can get back to everything else is what we often say to you, God. But I pray that wouldn't be the case. I pray that we would actually look for ways to be going. And guess what? We're already doing it. We just need to open our eyes. We need to open our hearts to, to what and to who you are calling us to go to. And here's the crazy thing, God. Here's all that you ask us to do. Go. Do it. I pray this morning, Lord, that you would lead us with your spirit. Lead us into the ways that you are calling us. Lead us to the paths that you are calling Lead us to the people you are calling us to. And that we would not just walk away from it, but we would reach into that moment and we would bring the gospel to bear in people's lives, to bring about transformation, 
for the good of your mission and to your glory. It's in Jesus' name that I pray these things. Amen.
so, I so love to sing scripture. That's all that is. But I, you know what I love even more than singing scripture? Living scripture. I, I hope that as you sing those words this morning, you don't just sing them, but you believe them. You don't just believe them, but you believe them to the core of who you are. The worst thing, guys, that we could ever do in life in following Jesus and being a believer in Jesus is to take what he's given to us and take the truth of what he's given to us and just hold on to it for ourselves. And so my prayer this morning, my hope this morning as we end this series, and as I send you out, it's a mission field out there, guys. Every single day of your life is a mission field. Go out to it. Be blessed. The Spirit go with you. Thank you for being here this morning.